0: I'm you guys are here this morning, and as we start a new study in the book of Matthew, I want to help you kind of understand the context of the gospel of Matthew. And then I, I do think there's some challenging things for us also to consider. But the bottom line is for us to be able to understand the book of Matthew. We understand the historical context of which it was written. And then it also raises the question of why do we have four books in the Bible that all talk about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and they're all slightly different but slightly similar? It seems kind of like you know the Bible you know has this redundant copies of uh, and so at, at a glance for some people they would say well they're all different so they maybe they contradict or maybe uh, why are they all different maybe the message is different in each one or maybe and, and so there's a lot of questions that arise from this and I want you to be equipped and understand for your own personal growth. Um, the difference between each of these books, number one, and number two, to be able to help explain that to other people, as well as understand the historical context of the coming of Christ, which is a wonderful, awesome thing um, to understand why, when Jesus came and how significant and how strategic that was in the big picture of God. Because I don't know about your life, but there's a tendency in my life for me to sometimes feel like things are out of control or to feel like um, things aren't playing out the way that I would like for them to, and um, and sometimes I lose sight of the fact that there's a big picture going on that that my life is not the epicenter of the universe. I know most of us kind of we wouldn't necessarily admit this, but I think all of us kind of grow uh, or live in the, that. We are the center of the universe and the world revolves around us. Right. It's like there's me and then there's the world. And it's just kind of circling me because I'm the center of it. And, and that's just not healthy, m- much less biblical uh, much less right, okay? It, we are not the center of the universe. God has a big plan, and we can kind of try to be our own you know, masters and our own sovereigns, if you will, our own kings, or we could submit ourselves to the king and to his kingdom. And so simply put, the Gospel of Matthew is really about um, Jesus, uh, the, the reality of Jesus, and, and Matthew is writing to the Jewish people to let them know that their king is here, and he has brought his kingdom, and so there is the reality, in fact, I, I tossed around whether to call this the king and his kingdom or call it the two kingdoms, because all of us are confronted with a challenge in life. And we constantly, I, I don't know that you might make a decision saying you submit to the king Jesus, but, uh, but the reality for us is, is that we struggle with kind of building our own kingdoms. Do we not? And so there's really two kingdoms. You could say lots of different, but ultimately, categorically, there's the, all of the different kind of temporal kingdoms, and then there's the one true eternal kingdom. There is all the different little k temporal kings, and then there's the one true king of kings, capital K, eternal king of the universe, of the world, of the galaxy, of the cosmos, of all that is, and that's Jesus. And so what we do in our lives is we try to um, construct our own Belief system in our own kind of little plan, so that we can be in charge of our own destiny and our decisions and our our lives, and we construct based on our own earthly, temporal, simplistic, tiny pea sized brain wisdom, our own kind of little universe. And and Jesus invades that and says, you know what? That I am the King of Kings. And I have brought my kingdom. And you have a choice. You can either be crushed by it or you could submit to it and be saved by it and live forever with me. That's it. Do you want to be sovereign in your life or do you want Jesus to be sovereign? That's really the, the, the point of the overall arching theme of the, the gospel of Matthew. And for that matter, the message of the Bible. And so when we look at Matthew specifically, what is different in the book of Matthew from the other gospels? Um, some different things about this. Matthew was written uh to but, uh, lord willing this will be recorded so we can if you want to write some of these things down or you can write as fast as you can but um but also some of this you can go back and listen to um later if you want to but um nonetheless matthew was written to the jews I already mentioned that and uh in the the bottom line message of of matthew's gospel in fact let me back up a little bit um each of the gospels we have four gospels There. They're categorized into a group of three and then one. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, that's called the synoptic Gospels, the synopsis. That's, they're kind of seen together because they're all very similar in their material. And then you have the Gospel of John, and John's is distinct from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a lot of similarities, but, but there's it, most of Matthew's content is, is fresh information that Matthew, Mark, and Luke does not cover. So most of John's comment, uh, did I say that? Most of John's Gospel... Okay, that's what I meant to say. Most of John's gospel is unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it has a lot of unique information that the others don't cover. Not contradictory, just new information. Each of them are writing to a different audience, first of all. Second of all, each of them are writing with a different goal in mind and with a different um, uh, organizational um, uh, themes behind their book. So, for instance, the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor, wrote under the direction of, of Peter, one of the apostles. And as Luke is writing, he's very technical and he's very chronological in his Gospel. And so we have the, the most information of any of the Gospels um, about the birth of Jesus and all the different parties involved in that, and John the Baptist and his family, and in um, uh, Zechariah, John's dad, um, his song of when he, when he realizes that he is going to um, blessed with a child for that matter that his child is going to be the forerunner to the messiah he sings this awesome song and then we have a song by mary called the magnificat where she says my soul magnifies the king and he goes into details about that and we have jesus in the temple as a little boy being um dedicated to the lord and then we have jesus um as a young um lad about 12 ish coming with his family to temple and then they all head back to, to uh to Nazareth, and they leave Jesus behind because he's hanging out in the temple, and they forget that Jesus isn't with them. You know that story. And So we have the most detailed chronological information in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm sorry, Luke. <laughs> I'm going to have you all confused by the time you leave. So the Gospel of Luke, technical, uh, detailed, chronological. The Gospel of Matthew is much more thematic, and he groups the teachings, the different things, not necessarily chronological, although they're, they are largely chronological but he groups them in, in, in segments and chunks of Jesus' ministry and teachings and, and emphasis of Jesus' um, teachings and ministry and actions and miracles and different things. And so he has basically, you have the intro to the book of Matthew, uh, the first several chapters where you have the, the birth of Jesus, um, then you have the 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 um, lineage of Jesus, which we talked about in December um, from the Gospel of Matthew. And then we have chapter three and four, which we're going to get into a little bit. We have John the Baptist on the scene and the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. And then chapter five, we begin what is the first of five different sermons or discourses or messages, segments of messages in the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew has five chunks of discourses. Um, messages and, and that's kind of the major structure and then the very end of Matthew we have obviously the the passion of Christ the the final week the death burial resurrection and then the great commission and that ends the book of Matthew everybody got this so far all right so Luke highly detailed Matthew grouped in thematic kind of clumps of information Mark the shortest of the gospels. He it's kind of the some call it, some people call it the busy man gospel because throughout the book, he uses the word immediately a bunch of times. He's he's in a hurry. Um, the gospel of Matthew is all about Jesus and moving from this place to that place to that place to that place. He's getting on with it. And 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 it's it's quick and to the point, And it's the shortest of the gospels, um, but but to the point. So who did Matthew, Mark and Luke, who do they write to? Matthew, as I've already said, wrote to the Jewish people to let them know that their king That was promised that they've been waiting for since King David, the son of King David, that that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Judaism, of, of the Jewish people and of Israel for that matter. And he is the king of the Jews and he is coming to establish his kingdom, which transcends the earthly little kingdom of the Jews. It is far greater. This is a eternal kingdom that he's coming to establish. So Jesus is the eternal king establishing the eternal kingdom. That's the that's the gospel of Matthew. Now, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Mark is written to the Romans, to the Roman Empire, to the to Roman pe- people. Um, in, in view, They're, obviously it's applicable to everybody. <coughs> Excuse me, but it's but it's targeting specifically the Romans, and the emphasis is not Jesus as king, but Jesus as the servant, the suffering servant. Jesus is the perfect servant. Jesus coming to serve humanity, and so. Uh, that's kind of the emphasis of, of Matthew. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, we get to Luke. Luke has a little different emphasis. Luke is emph- he's writing to the Gentiles, though non-Jewish people. That's his target, non-Jewish people, which is really the majority of us. Um, almost all of us would be um, non-Jewish. In fact, I would say all of us here are, um, if anybody has a little bit of Judaism um, or Jewish blood in them, um, it would be a slice of. Um, I don't think anybody's pure here, um, but, uh, but he is writing to Gentiles, which is really all of us. So Luke writes to Gentiles, and his emphasis is Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. So he's, saying, he's talking about Jesus, the, the God-man, emphasis on the humanity and the, the, um, the works of Jesus. So he kind of puts Jesus on an accessible level to all of us. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's the Synoptic Gospels. And then we get to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John is very theological in its orientation. It's very theological, and the major emphasis of the Gospel of John is on Jesus as God. Jesus is is God. He's not just a man, but Jesus is God. And so, throughout that book, uh, he says things like he uses the divine name of of God, um, which is that Jesus calls himself the I Am. That's the Old Testament name for God. It's really where we get the the name Yahweh or Jehovah from? The I am that I am. And so Jesus says things like, before Abraham was, I am. They're saying, well, who are you? I mean, who are you to say that you, are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus says, am I greater than Abraham? Before Abraham was, I am. That's Jesus' answer, which is to say that I preceded him, number one. Number two, that I am God. He uses the divine name basically in Greek right there and shows himself to be God not to mention um, through other works and other things that he does. And so John puts a heavy emphasis on Jesus is God. And that's the point of, of the Gospel of John. So there you have it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all written to different audiences. They're organized in different matters, and they emphasize. But none of them contradict one another, um, with the exception of, of sometimes they're in different orders. So sometimes we get things, some emphasize something, another one doesn't. Some, and so there's a lot of different um, explanations when you find differences there, although there's not very many. Um, and none that certainly affect the, the truth of uh, claims of those Gospels. And so that is the, the summary of the first four books. So when we look a little more specifically at the Gospel of Matthew, what, what do we learn within this book? Well, the very first verse in there, he says um, in Matthew, I guess I should have turned there ahead of time. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I'll give you, a will race. Uh, Matthew 1, 1. In fact, while you're flipping there, let me tell you one more thing about. Um, how many of you guys have had a New Testament survey class at some point? You know anything about? Okay, a couple of you. All right. Uh, there's, a, there's a debate over the order of the Gospels. And, um, and I don't want to spend too much time again. This is not a major point here. But, um, but just for you to, hear, to understand this, uh, there's debate over what's the order that they were given. Is it, are they in the Bible that we have? Are they in chronological order as they were written? Or did they were they passed down in a different order, and so long story short, um, based upon um, the different uh, critical methods that have been used to to um, help uh, Bible theologians and what have you date books and understand when there's passages that might. Um, you know, be different or whatever, which is the more which is the older passage, which would be the more authoritative one. They they kind of push towards the shorter book. And so because Matthew or Mark is the shortest gospel, many have said, well, that must be the shortest one because you wouldn't um, take away information. So Mark is probably written first. And so this is called Mark and Priority, and then they must have wrote Matthew after that, and then they probably wrote Luke after that, and they kept adding information and making it bigger and and growing it. And, you know, to be honest, it really does not affect whether it is God's Word or it is not God's Word, which book was written first. I mean, at the end of the day, ultimately, the question is, is this the inspired Word of God or is it not? And I would say, regardless of what order they were written, I would say, yes, it's the inspired Word of God. There's too much internal evidence that would say anything other than that, not to mention the fact that there's no contradictions, no error. no It's it's the real deal. But I would also say that when you look at historians, um, there's plenty of information that would point to the fact that Matthew was the first of the Gospels written. And he wrote it, most likely, according to one of the church fathers, um, Eusebius, okay? Eusebius mentioned... Papias. Papias was another one of the early church fathers. These are guys that lived between 100 to 150 B.C. And Eusebius refers to Papias um, and Papias had said that Matthew's original gospel was written in Hebrew and then eventually was translated into Greek. Which is to say that I, I think what probably, what I think we'll find out when we get to heaven one day um, is that we that Matthew was written in Hebrew and then to make it helpful for everybody not just the jewish people it was translated into greek and so probably the translation took place after mark and luke but the original writing of his gospel was probably preceded those as we have in the um the order that we find it in our bibles and so, uh, for a little trivial pursuit fans there, and I don't know that you'll ever get that question, but I do believe in Matthew priority. I think Matthew was written first. I think we'll find out it was originally written in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek, and, and that's the copy that we have passed down to us, is the Greek versions of that. And Papias says it, and Papias was closer to the events than I was, and so I think he's smarter than um, liberal theologians of this day. So, alright, let's pray and we'll go home. Alright, I'm kidding. That's uh, Alright, so, a uh, little, little background for you. Now, um, what is the what is the gospel of Matthew about? What is the, what is the point of of his um, gospel? So Matthew chapter one verse one, he gives a little hint. I'm not gonna we're not we're gonna skip over chapter one and two for the most part because we've kind of gone over that a little bit um, in our life groups and then also um, before Christmas, and uh, we'll save that for next Christmas to, to finish that. But the very first verse I want to point your attention to says, "The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham." This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What what does that mean? And then he goes into the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And He goes on, well, here's the thing. If Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews, then we have to be able to verify his identity and his genealogy. Um, And we've got to be able to trace him back to Abraham and certainly to David to make sure that he's of the kingly line. That's why this is relevant. But he, he, of all the people that he could emphasize, why in verse 1 does he say, the son of Abraham, the son of David? I, I think that's because Abraham and David represent two covenants that God made in the Old Testament, two promises he made in the Old Testament that would carry on to the New Testament. The first pr- promise he made um, was to Abraham, that he was going to give him descendants um, that would outnumber the dust of the earth the stars of the, of the sky, that he's going to have a whole bunch of um, descendants that are all going to come through his one son, Isaac. And this is a promise that God made to Abraham. And then you go on in Abraham's life. And remember, he after Isaac is born, he tells him to sacrifice Isaac. And so most significantly in Abraham's life, the most significant moment, I believe, was when God told him to kill his only son. And he took him up um, upon that mountain, and he, uh, Mount Moriah, and he put his son on the altar that he built. And his son, old enough to fight back, willingly submitted himself and trusted his father, who believed that somehow God was going to preserve his life, but nonetheless obeyed God when he said, kill your son. And he lifts up the knife, and he's about to drop it into his son to kill the son, and then burn him as a burnt offering, because God said, do it. Even though God promised that he was going to give him a bunch of descendants, here's the, the vehicle by which he's going to do that, and he's about to kill him. And so he trusts God, regardless of the fact that the math doesn't add up, regardless of the fact that he doesn't understand what God's doing. He trusts God. and He's about to kill his son, and God says, Stop! And suddenly he hears off to the side a ram caught in the thickets, and God provides a ram, or a lamb, if you will, that would be a substitute that would die in the place of his son, that would take the wrath of God, that would would, um, enable Abraham to be obedient, God's wrath to be appeased. And so when we look at Abraham's life and Abraham's covenant is that I will make a godly nation and I will provide a substitute. I will provide a lamb that will die in the place of humanity, that will be a substitutionary atonement. Then we move on to the covenant made with David. Now David was the, the greatest king of Israel, was King David. And God made a promise to David that his son, that he would have a son one day in his in his line that would be not just a good king, but would be an eternal king whose reign would be forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, I don't know about you, but I've come to the realization that I will not live forever. In fact, I've noticed with people around me that people keep being born and people get older and die, and people die young, people die different. But people, you live, you die. You live, you die. You People are dying. Okay, That's part of life. That's part of our humanity is to live once and then you're going to die. Right. And so for there to be a king that never dies, then he can't be just a man. There's got to be something different about this king. And that is the the prophecy was that there would be an eternal king that would one day come in the line of David. So he would somehow have to be man to be in the line of David, but also have to be God. So he would be like a God king that would come like a man king, a man God that would come wrapped up into one person to fulfill that promise that there would be an eternal king. In fact, Judah, the tribe of Judah, which is David comes from the tribe of Judah, and all the kings would come from the tribe of Judah, was known as um, the kind of the symbol for the tribe of Judah, in fact, the prophecies of Jesus that there would be one who would be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So now we have two images. We have the substitutionary atonement of the Lamb, right? And then we have the King, the eternal king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Matthew begins his gospel. By saying, in fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham, in fulfillment of the covenant made with David, the Davidic covenant, the son of Abraham, the son of God, this is the story of Jesus. And if you're not sure if he's the legit king, you can go to the temple and you can look all this stuff up because they would have had the records back then. So when the Bible's written, these all these details and all this information is there because people can go look it up. They can go to the library and they can find out. They can do a Google search and look at Wikipedia Jerusalem and find out whether this is legit or not. So so he, they're not just throwing out stuff and making up stuff, you know, after Jesus, let's make up a religious system called Christianity, that'd be really cool. And we'll get a bunch of people to, to to follow it. And they could even be killed as martyrs for this pretend belief system that we're going to make up. And it'll be really exciting and awesome. And, and And lots of people die and it'll be fun. Is that what happened? No. Now the stuff is written in real time, in a real historical context, and there's real information to back up the claims made in the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew is a definitive, clear, precise document that, f- that proves to the Jewish people conclusively that Jesus is the legit King of Israel, the King of the Jews, and he has come to establish in the line of David an eternal and eternal kingdom. He is the Lamb, but he is the lion, and that is the Gospel of Matthew, some awesome stuff now, to take one step beyond that, I'll give you a couple other I- images that we find in this book we we find matthew Matthew begins or really at the beginning of the Bible, we find man rebels against God, and because of man's rebellion. Uh, people are broken and living in sin, and they live in a broken and fallen world. So people have sinned, they're broken, they're sinful, and they live in a broken and sinful world, right? That's the reality of, of the majority of the Bible, and that's the reality today. We have, we have broken people living in a broken world, and then we have Jesus coming, and when Jesus steps onto the scene, what does he do? What's the mission of Jesus? What's the purpose of Jesus? As we see in the Gospels, specifically in Matthew, we see him coming on the scene to first redeem his people. But then he promises to come back one day to reclaim his planted, planet. So he's going to redeem his people. One day he's going to come and he's going to reclaim the planet. He's going to establish his full reign and power and authority on the earth. So there's two comings with Jesus. He's going to come twice. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't see that. They saw one. And we're going to see that more as we look more in detail into the, the message of John the Baptist as he preaches at the Jordan River. But, the, but that's the, the overall theme of, of the Bible is the coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of, of, of the promises in the, in the, in the Old Testament to uh, reclaim and redeem his people and then to reestablish his authority as the rightful heir and king of the earth. That's the story of the Bible. And so to go back in a little history here for you, and this is put your historical um, glasses on here and we're going to go back uh, 400 years from the coming of Jesus. Actually a little, little over that uh, from the life of Jesus from when the chapter three is going to take place. So between 450 and 400 B.C., we have the last of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi, writing his prophecy, 450 to 400 B.C., really finishing in 400 B.C. The last time God speaks, it's the last time God speaks through the prophets, is 400 uh, B.C. And then for 400 years, it's known as the 400 years of silence. God doesn't speak. God has no prophet that he speaks to the people through God is silent he's given the prophecies of the old testament and they wait for 400 years but a lot of stuff happens between the end of the old testament and the beginning of the new testament events and so what we want to help you understand because because you end the old testament and things look a certain way and then you start the new testament and and things look a lot different in some ways and so we're wondering what what's the historical context on which Jesus was born and what do things look like and how do we get there and this is going to help you because this is kind of like the cliff notes for uh, the Gospel of Matthew is what I'm trying to give you here. Because we're going to look at the, who are the Pharisees and who are the Sadducees and what is the religious teaching of that day and some different things that are going to be in, important for you to really understand this book, okay? And so exciting stuff, okay? I, those of you that didn't like history, it's because I wasn't your teacher. You're going to love this. All right, uh, so 400 B.C., Malachi is written, 450 to 400 B.C., and then in that context, God has restored his people from Babylon. They have come out of Babylon, and they've been able to come back to Jerusalem. They have rebuilt the temple under the leadership of the governor, Zerubbabel, who really was kind of like the king of that day. Zerubbabel, who would have been a legitimate king, but they called him the governor, he has them rebuild the temple. And remember, Nehemiah helps them rebuild the walls, so they've rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the temple, and, and the temple had to be rebuilt because Solomon's unbelievably beautiful, elaborate, um, expensive, just wonderful temple had been destroyed by Babylon. They'd been carried off into captivity for 70 years, and then God had sent the Persian army to destroy the Babylonian army. The, pre, the Persian army is now in control of the world, and underneath the Persian army, uh, Israel's allowed to go back, or Ju- the Jews are, about, are allowed to go back to Jerusalem and Judah, and they are able to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and all those things. And in that time, God is speaking prophecies, telling him that there's one who's going to come like Elijah, and he's going to he's going to um, make straight the way for the Lord. He's going to prepare the path um, as we're as prophesied in the book of Isaiah. So Malachi speaks, and then we fast forward to um, 331 BC. Now remember, uh, if history people, it's dropping down because we're going to get to zero. And then we're going to start adding up from that point forward. So, so this is approximately uh, two thousand three hundred, yeah, three hundred years from today, two thousand three hundred years ago. This is where we're at historically. So, Greek Empire. So, the P, the Persians were the powerful empire. You have Babylon. Babylon falls to so the Persians, the Medes, and the Persians. And then the Persians are the ones who are in power. And then uh, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, who was tutored by um, Aristotle till age sixteen. Very smart, very wise, um, and very uh, um, a great soldier, he builds the Greek Empire to a point of power, and within a matter of years, rapidly, he conquers the known world, and he destroys the Persian Empire. He takes his armies from Greece and and travels all across down to Israel, and then then all the way across and um, to to really almost to India, modern day India, and he establishes the Greek empire under alexander the great and at the age of 33 he's conquered the whole world and he dies conquered the whole world and he dies and after uh 30 331 bc what happens is um, he dies in 323 bc um give you a little more of the context in um around 200 bc the great wall of china is built so this is the historical events that are happening all around the globe During this time, but when he dies, what happens at 323 BC is his kingdom, the 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 Greek Empire, is left with. He he did he made a major mistake. He never made a last will and testament, so nobody knew what to do after he died. And so there's a lot of fighting. And what happened is, ultimately, long story short, his empire got divided up between three of his primary generals, and they fought over chunks of it. And so one of the guys was his name was Ptolemy. And he went down to Egypt, and he thought, you know what, I'm going to go down, I'm going to conquer Egypt, and that's going to be my headquarters. And another guy, Seleucid, he kind of he headquartered his place a little further n- north and east, I guess modern-day um, Iraq, Afghanistan. That was his place, and then there was a third guy that, that went over back more towards where Greece was. And so we have it divided up in the kind of three sections. And, and between Egypt, between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, was a little strip of land called Israel. And if you want to get to... The Ptolemies, you gotta go through Israel. And if you want to get to the Seleucids, you've got to go through Israel. And so they lived in, they were at the right place at the wrong time all the time. There's constantly different armies traveling through Jerusalem and through Israel where they were. Because if you want to conquer North Africa, you're going to have to go through that strip of land. And so it was it was a it was a big deal. And so this is what things keep evolving, and eventually the um the Seleucid Empire becomes their kingdom, becomes the stronger one. And a guy by the name of Antiochus. Epiphanes becomes the leader. And this guy is a bad, bad dude. Antiochus Epiphanes in 169 B.C. is fighting the Ptolemies in Egypt. And word gets back to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, who he was oppressing and really mean to, that he had died. And you know what they did? They threw a huge party. They got fired up about it. They threw a party. Well, a tweet got back to him that they were throwing a party in Jerusalem um, not really a tweet, but they really did message, got back to him, that they were they were throwing a party in Jerusalem. And so he got mad, and he took his armies, turned them around, and marched back to Jerusalem, and that was it. He had had enough of the Jews at that point. And he goes into the temple of Zerubbabel, where they worship the one true God, and he takes a pig, cuts its head off, and its blood mixed with water, and defiles the whole temple of God with an unclean animal and sets up an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He's a bad guy. And then he goes out and he begins to persecute and execute and kill hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jews if they won't worship Zeus and surrender themselves to Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's a guy by the name of Judas Maccabee that says, enough is enough. And this is like the brave heart moment. It, he finally, they come to him and they say, hey, you're going to bow down, you need to worship Zeus. And he says, I'm not worshiping your false god. And Judas Maccabeus throws down a fight and creates a what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. And over the next several years, they begin this guerrilla warfare, and they are able to overtake Antiochus Epiphanes and his armies and run him out of Jerusalem, and they retake the temple. And so in 165 B.C., the Maccabean revolt has led by Judas Maccabeus has resulted in them cleansing or regaining the temple, and they cleanse the temple. They clean, purify the temple. And when they're left, you know the story from, from December. When they, when, when they get back in, what they find is just enough oil for like one day to begin um, to relight the lamps in the temple. Um, the ceremonial lamps for the used for the the, the lampstand used in the in the temple to worship God. There's only a little bit of oil, and God supernaturally um, allows that purified sacred oil to last for seven days, which was impossible. It was a miracle, and it's known as the festival. Uh, they celebrate that every year to this day as the festival of lights. You know it as Hanukkah. It's all that traces back. Hanukkah is the celebration of the recapturing of the temple and the Maccabean revolt. Now, this is a big deal because after the Maccabees, after he dies, he kind of Maccabee, uh, Judas Maccabee and his people, his, his family, kind of ends up being the default rulers of Israel over the next years. And they, there's a kingdom that kind of begins to grown, uh, grow out of this known as the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans. So the Hasmoneans are the ones kind of ruling over Jerusalem, and they're Jewish people. So they're kind of somewhat legit rulers, the Hasmoneans. And this is relevant because this is where the Sadducees and the Pharisees are going to come from. Okay, so I'm, I'm this is connecting. So track with me. So 165 BC they 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 cleanse the temple, and then from 110 to 63 BC you have a period of relative peace in uh, Judah and in Jerusalem. Relatively, they they are only, they were able to kind of rule themselves. They don't have the Greek empire down their throats. They don't have the Seleucids or the Ptolemies or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Romans. They're they're free to rule themselves, and they're kind of a free nation again for a short period of time. And it's in this period that they begin to establish these little local congregations as they have spread out now, um, local congregations called synagogues. And synagogues are like local churches, little buildings where when people can't go back to the temple to worship, they can hear the law read and their children can be taught, and they can worship God in their synagogues. And so they have these local churches made, and then you also have two political religious groups that begin to emerge. And this is, this is where you got a clue in for this part. This is You're going to want to know this. Two groups begin to emerge. One is called the Sadducees, and the other is called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the experts in the law. They're the scholars. They are the ones who they... They're the people that... To be honest, we would kind of be in their group. We would root for them. We would go, yay, Pharisees, boo, Sadducees. We would like the most of us, I think, would like the Pharisees because these guys believed in the Bible. They taught and believed and were passionate about the Word of God. And in, in fact, they felt like it should, it should, the, the Word of God should dictate our lives, should control, should, um, should kind of give us a path and the way to live. And it's really important and we should fight for it and protect it. And so the, 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 the Pharisees, um, in this period, they created a court known as the Sanhedrin, which would have a group of Pharisees would be on the Sanhedrin, 70-something, and they would rule. And so different challenges and issues brought would, that, that happened in the nation would be brought before them, and they were like the Supreme Court, and they would rule over those different things. In fact, Jesus, um, right before he's crucified, is brought before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin. And these is a, this is a group of Pharisees. And so when you hear the, the Bible talking about, in the Gospels talking about the lawyers and the scholars and the, the uh, experts in the law and the, and the Pharisees, that's all the same people, basically. So that's one group, the Pharisees. The other group is the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they were the sellouts. These are the guys that were religiously, they were Jews. In fact, the priests were all Sadducees. The high priest was a Sadducee. The different, but the Sadducees and the, the high priest had a position of power, and he wanted to regain his, he wanted to, to continue to maintain his power. So when other groups, when eventually the Roman Empire comes in and conquers under the leadership of Pompey, which is the next um, point on there, 63 B.C., um, Julius Caesar is now the emperor of Rome, and he's built this Roman Empire, and it finally has gotten strong enough that it now overtakes this area. And Pompey is his general that comes in, and he goes into Jerusalem, and I'll show you a picture of him going to the temple here in a minute, he goes into Jerusalem, and he conquers the area, and they create, they make Judah and Jerusalem um, a subsidiary or a, a vassal state underneath their rule. So basically, they're going to have to pay taxes to the Roman Empire, and they can live in peace, and we'll let them do their religious stuff, and they can have their their Pharisees, and they can have their Sadducees, and they can have their Sanhedrin court, and they can have their high priest, they can do their stuff, but as long as they don't mess with us, because we are their power, and they've got to keep... Mailing some money to us and we're going to tax them and we're going to be in charge of them in fact by the way matthew was one of the tax collectors that would collect money from jewish people and send it to rome which meant he wasn't a very popular guy and so you have uh you have pompey coming in and establishing his rule and so the sadducees decide you know what we're going to have to make some political alliances because we don't want to get thrown under the bus. We don't want to get um, kicked aside. If we're going to keep our power, then we're going, to, we're going to have to do what we have to do to make compromises with the Roman government. So let's just, let's just work a deal with them, and let's do whatever we have to do to keep them happy. And so the Sadducees they did not have a high view of Scripture. They didn't believe in the miracles of the Bible. They didn't even believe. They only kind of believed the Pentateuch, the first five books, and they really were kind of you know, fuzzy on what they believed about those. Um, they didn't believe in the miracles. They didn't believe in supernaturals. They didn't believe in um, eternal life after death. They didn't believe a lot of stuff that the, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe it. So a lot of people call them the Sadducees were sad. You see, because they didn't believe in miracles and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. and They didn't believe in all these different things. And they were they were political. Um, they did what was best for them to keep power. That's the Sadducees. So we have the Pharisees. We have the Sadducees. Um, under the time when, when now um, Pompey has entered in Jerusalem and Roman Empire is now um, taken over. And so in 37 B.C., the Roman Empire and Julius Caesar establishes a ruler over the Jewish people, and his name is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great in 37 um, B.C. becomes the king of Judah. The problem is Herod was not Jewish. <laughs> he was not from the tribe of Judah. So he was not a legitimate king. In fact, he was an Edomite. He was um, a descendant of Edom. Um, Jacob and Edom, remember the, the twins that were born and Jacob became the heir and, and Edom was a sellout who sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup. And, and so you know, the Edomites were always kind of in the picture, but they were never part of the lineage, the line of the tribes and the, the official people of Israel. And so, Herod an Idiomite, an Edomite, um, he he decides. You know what? I, if I'm going to be the king, I'm going to have to. So he goes and takes a Hasmonian wife. He gets one of the descendants of Maccabee to be his wife. Like that's going to fix it. And then he does some other things. Like he thinks, you know what? I'll build the, I'll take the temple. I'll take Zerubbabel's little temple, and I'm going to rebuild it, make it bigger, and 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 that way I'll win some favor with the Jewish people. So he does different things. And cahoots with the Sadducees to try to win favor. And it never totally works. But, and he's also really, this is the guy that was kind of um, really kind of schizophrenic and afraid that somebody's going to take his throne. And, and so Caesar said of him, I've, you guys have heard me say this before, that, that it would be better to be his we than his weos. It would be better to be his pig than his son in Greek because this guy's crazy and he killed a lot of his family members in fear that they were going to try to overtake his authority. So Herod the Great was not so great, but he was great in that he built some awesome major. Um, buildings that are there to this day, but he was bad in that he was a crazy guy. So here at illegitimate king. Let me show you a couple pictures of what this would have looked like. Here's a picture of Pompeii going into the um, temple of Jerusalem. It's hard to see that, but this is the temple. This would have been Zerubbabel's temple. This is an artistic rendering, and you can see at the very least some spears of Roman soldiers in a place where only the priests are supposed to go, and up those stairs... Um, there's another curtain, and, that, and on the other side of that would have been the Holy of Holies. And so here they are invading the temple. Pompey is coming in, he's taking things over, and they're establishing their authority. The next picture is a picture of what, um, an artistic rendering of what Zerubbabel's temple would have looked like. So you have the, the burning altar outside where they would burn the sacrifices, and then you go through the doorway into the temple, and inside it would be the holy place, and then in the back would be another doorway with curtains that would go into the Holy of Holies. So Herod sees this, and he says, you know, that's cool, but I can do better. And so Herod the Great expands the temple complex and makes this monstrosity of a huge... In fact, the, the floor of that structure is there to this day. There's a, there's a Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock, on this spot now. That golden dome thing is right there um, or in the, on this foundation. It might not be in that exact spot, but on this foundation. And the only thing left of this whole structure is the western wall the outside support wall, because this is all built on a mountaintop. And if you're going to build a building on a mountaintop, you have to give it a, a flat base, right? And so what they did is they, they took this mountaintop and they expanded out to make this bigger um, complex and then just built these giant walls and, and expanded, made this big flat surface to build this, all these fortresses and things that they built on top of it. And that's Mount Moriah where Abraham would have sacrificed or been um, ready to sacrifice his son. And this is the place where David made some sacrifices. And this is the place where um, the temple was built on this very spot. And so um, there you go. So this thing is huge. This thing is like like 10 times the size of Zerubbabel's temple. And by the way, during the temptations of Christ in uh, Matthew chapter 4, we'll look at this. One of the temptations is he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. He takes him to the roof of the temple. And he challenges them to jump off this, and God will send the angels to catch you. That was one of the temptations. And, and he would have been standing on that roof. That's where Jesus would have been. Not the exact roof, but that, it's an artistic rendering of it. So, a model. So, you with me? You got this going in your head, okay? So, let me, let me bring us back together, okay? And we're going to land the plane here in a couple minutes. So, here's what's going on. Herod the Great in 20 B.C., he rebuilds and enlarges the temple compound. Now, this all tees up the ball for the, for the, the event that we're most interested in, and that is the coming of Jesus. Herod the Great dies in 4 B.C. Jesus was born at least within two years of, the death of before the death of Herod the Great. And so that means that Jesus was born between 4 to 6 B.C. John the Baptist born several months before Jesus and then Jesus was born. So in 4 to 6 B.C., John the Baptist and Jesus are born. And then in 4 B.C., we know historically that Herod the Great dies. So what does this, what does this have to do with the gospel of Matthew. Well, this helps us have the historical context because let's jump to the next slide. What we find when we look at all this is in the context of the coming of Jesus, um, this, this is what's going on. God has established these synagogues, which are going to be kind of a pattern by which early church can, can begin to replicate itself. These local congregations that are going to spread out over the whole Ram, uh, the whole kingdom and the whole known world. There's two groups that have arisen, and we have the Sadducees and we have the Pharisees, and they're kind of warring and they're fighting against each other. In fact, in in chapter three, as I'm going to read in just a second, we're going to find John the Baptist preaching at the sea at the, at the Jordan River, and he's preaching, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to listen to him, and so he calls out the Pharisees and the Sadducees and calls them to repent. And so if you would have just read that, you would have gone, well, who are the Sadducees, Pharisees? who are these guys? And now you know who these guys are. Sadducees, they're the liberals. They're the ones who are looking for political alliances and want to keep their power. The Pharisees, they're the religious extreme uh, people that are they're passionate about the word of God, but they have created a religion that Jesus doesn't fit in anymore. And we'll get, to that, get back to that in a minute. So you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and then you have this reality in the Roman Empire, and this is where it's beautiful, because we're going to stick with me one second. Pax Romana, which means Roman peace, peace of Rome. The Roman Empire did a lot of certainly bad things, but they did some really good things. And here's what they did. They established a universal language. They established universal peace, and they established a universal interstate system, road system. So you could travel from any place in the Roman Empire Freely, and you didn't have to stop at every country and try to, you know, wonder if you're going to be let through. You could freely travel anywhere you wanted in the Roman Empire as long as you're a Roman citizen. And so they established an interstate road system, common language. Everybody spoke um, Greek, what was called Koine Greek, common Greek. Everybody spoke it. Now, you might have another mother tongue, but for business, everybody spoke Greek. Today, the closest comparison to this would be English. Most countries of the world, Um, they're learned people, they're they're business people, they're educators, they speak some English. And so English has become kind of the universal language of the world. Well, even more so was Greek, the universal language of that day. And so you have interstate road system, common language, and you can travel safely, which is really important because when the Messiah comes, when the king comes and establishes kingdom, according to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, this is what the Bible says. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons in the fullness of time. Jesus comes. So why did Jesus come earlier? They've been praying for the Messiah for thousands of years. Why didn't he come earlier? Why didn't he come later in the perfect time in world history? The perfect time, the ball was teed up in the perfect moment. God had orchestrated and allowed and caused and purposed circumstances that kingdoms to rise, kingdoms to fall, other kingdoms to rise, other kingdoms to fall, to bring it to the point where there was a common language, common road race system, uh, peace in the nation, to where you could, the gospel could spread rapidly. And within the next hundred years, the gospel is going to spread to the known world. It all begins with the coming of Christ in the fullness of time. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, what does all this have to do with Matthew? Um, again, it's the background, but let's look at chapter 3, verse 1, and let me read just a couple verses before you make a comment, and then we're done. In those days, John the Baptist, the fulfillment of Malachi, the verse I just read, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who spoke of the, was spoke of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about The Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan and confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, In other words, don't be so foolish as to think. We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children from Abraham. In other words, just because your bloodline traces back to Abraham doesn't mean you're any more part of Abraham than these rocks over here. That's what he's saying. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than i whose sandals i am not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire now we'll look at this whole sermon by john the baptist and the baptism of jesus more next week but the one thing i want you to tune in on and this is the the, the final thought for for this morning is verse 2 the message of john the baptist was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the fullness of time, the, the, the one who God had raised up in fulfillment of prophecies in Isaiah, Malachi, and other places in the Old Testament, John the Baptist comes. Kind of the new Elijah, dressed like Elijah would have been dressed, preaching a message of repentance. And he tells everybody to repent. And here's the, this is why I believe Matthew is a strategic, really important book for us to look at as a church in the historical context of when we live, in the geographical location of where we live. Because we too live in an area with religiosity that has created a system that that is connected with biblical Christianity but is a perversion of biblical Christianity. And if we're going to know Christ and we're going to understand the king and we're going to live for his kingdom, we're going to have to repent of the false kingdom that has been created that is a false religion that is not biblical Christianity. And so repentance is simply means to change your mind, is to have a different thinking. And ultimately we need the grace of God to think different and to be different. John the Baptist challenges the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, Repent, and, and I would like to see you, you do the works that would be, um, let's see, some fruit of repentance in your lives. In other words, there should be a different mindset which should result in different actions. Not do different actions so that you have a different mindset. But if you would repent, submit yourself to God, and let Jesus be your king, then there will be, different, there will be fruit in your life, and we will know it because you're going to be different. See, what the religious people that day had done is they had created, and I'll talk about this more in detail, but they had created this thing called Corbin. And Corbin was um, a simple word in the Old Testament meant offerings or sacrifices, and, but it, it evolved into something completely different. And what it was is this hedge that they would put around the law, and so they would say if they established this Corbin so that if you're going to break something, you break the Corbin, because we don't want to break the law. And so they put a law around the law to protect people from violating the law. So they created a whole new set of rules and regulations of how people relate to God and what people should do and what they shouldn't do and what they're supposed to do, how they should look and how they should act and how they should should dress and how they should this and that. And and they put this whole system out there. And so Jesus comes in this time and he confronts that, as we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount here in a couple chapters, and tells him, you've heard it said before, everybody says this and this, but let me tell you what it really means. I tell you, and with authority, he cuts through the cor- corbin to tell them the truth of the word of God. And so what, what do we have? The posture we need to have this morning, and as we think about this book of Matthews, I want to just throw out the question to you, and I want you to go home with a thought of, of, in what ways is my the religious system that I operate under, my thinking of how I relate to God, in what ways has it become a man-made system um, in in a way that I, if I do certain things or don't do certain things, I will be pleasing to God or not pleasing to God. In what ways have I established a system where I relate to God based upon my own righteousness or lack thereof? And I am building a system on self righteousness, on my own works and my own efforts and my own. And what ways have I constructed in my head? And do I relate to God in a system of things that just is not biblical? Because the way you relate to Jesus, into the King and His Kingdom is simply this, repentance and faith. Repenting of your religious system, your rebellion towards God, or your self-righteous religiosity towards God. You repent of both of those things, and you trust in what Jesus has done. Different mindset. Different thinking, repent, you have a change of mind. You put your faith and trust in Christ and what he has done as he has died as a substitutionary atonement for you. He has died as the lamb sacrificed in place of your sin, and he is the rightful king of which you need to submit to. So the reality of Jesus is he is our our Lord, king, and he is our savior, our lamb. He has died to pay for our sins. We must submit ourselves and allow him to be our masters. The question you're going to have to answer every week as we look through the Gospel of Matthew is simply this, who is your master? Who is your sovereign? Who, is, who are you submitting your life to? Who's in charge of your life? Ultimately, that's the question for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we pray in these moments as we reflect upon this, as we sing, as we give um, tithes and offerings in worship to you, not because of trying to obtain righteousness or please man, but because you've graciously provided for us. God, in the same way that we give out of an overflow of what you have done, God, I pray in these next moments that you would would help us to to tune our hearts and to think about and apply is is there areas of our life where we have constructed something that's just not in your word, that we have constructed a false system on which we relate to you based upon our own merit, our own actions, our own goodness, rather than upon the righteousness that comes only through jesus god i pray that you'd help us grant us the discernment the wisdom as we grow through um, hearing the gospel of matthew and and we study in our own and, and it's it's preached and taught that we would understand ways that we have related to you wrongly and that there would be repentance and faith in jesus in our lives god that there would be a change of mind change of heart which would result in Fruit that in the keeping of repentance. So Father, I pray that you would speak to hearts, move in our lives in these moments. In Jesus' name. Amen.